You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts, but the Lakers have two. Bryant, to shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fisher. The Celtics-Bucks series is getting good. Winners of 60 regular season games and boasting one of the league's best offenses and defenses, along with MVP contender Giannis Antetokounmpo, the Bucks are certainly a handful. Even so, the Celtics, the conference's preseason favorites, handily upset Milwaukee in Game 1. Then, Tuesday, the Bucks answered with a lopsided victory of their own to even the series at one. This is Aaron Fishman, joined this episode by Tom Westerholm of Mass Live, who breaks down the series from a Celtics perspective. But before we get into it, let's get a little bit more color on our guest. His hardcore punk band, Chapters, toured the country over a period of four years, once doing a show with The Wonder Years, a pop-punk band still going strong to this day. Most notably, and strangely, at a Nebraska venue where Tom and his friends performed, the building owner interrupted the show halfway through, waving a gun around and telling everyone they had to leave because a door frame had been damaged. There were definitely some characters on their tours, as there are in the Celtics-Bucks series. That discussion begins here. Hey Tom, Celtics Bucks is a really exciting series. I'm really excited to delve into this with you. Thanks a lot for joining me. Yeah, of course, man. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. We know how explosive the Milwaukee Bucks offense can be, arguably the top offense in the league, depending on the metric that you look at. The Celtics did a great job in game one of um, slowing them down. This uh, Bucks offense under Mike Budenholzer in his first year really liked to shoot threes early and often, spread the floor for Giannis to be able to dominate in the paint. How did Boston thwart that plan in game one? And to what extent do you think that approach is replicable the rest of the series? You know, it's a, it's a good question. I think one of my biggest takeaways from game one was how replicable I thought it all was, you know, and I didn't, not that the Celtics were going to win every game by 20 or not that the Celtics were going to, you know, win in five or something like that. Um, But I did think that this is a strategy that they've employed against Giannis basically, you know, all through last year's playoffs was just let Al Horford guard him one-on-one and then everybody else can get out to shooters. And, you know, it really hammers home how good Horford is at defending that he was able to do that and that he is able to do that because every once in a while in this series, you see like Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown, you know, guys who are not small necessarily get switched on to Giannis and he just like blows by them and, and gets a dunk. So it's replicable just because the Celtics have a guy like Horford who is as good at defending as he is and who is, you know, strong and, and, able to move his feet and able to stay in front. So I don't think that, I mean, obviously we saw in game two that Giannis can go off. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's certainly not something that guarantees the Celtics a victory, but I do think that Giannis is going to have a difficult series. He's going to have to work for every bucket, every free throw he gets. And, you know, 
as as much as the Celtics can hope for a win in this series, that's going to be kind of what it rests on. Yeah, you saw clearly, even in game two, the Celtics had a plan defensively and they did a pretty good job of guarding the paint. But Giannis is so good and he has those ridiculously long arms. Remember that reverse layup that he just kind of scooped it around so easily? Yeah. I think it was Baines. Yeah. He's just so wide and he had really good defensive positioning. And I guess you just have to shake your head and say, I played good defense on that play, but he's Giannis. He might be the MVP or at least top two. And I mean, he does those things. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, if you, Brad Stevens just has been yelling and yelling that Giannis is the MVP over the last (laughs) like week or so. Like he's probably, he's literally probably said it like six or seven times. Uh, Baines is an interesting case because, you know, People saw last year a couple. There were like a couple of plays where Baines would. He obviously he's strong enough to keep Giannis away from the rim, but Giannis really can kind of turn the corner on Baines a little bit. He does kind of scoot around him in ways that he doesn't scoot around somebody like Horford or somebody like you know Shemi Ojale. Um, so you know, we saw a lot of Baines on Giannis in Game Two. I'm not sure how much Stevens will continue to go to that going forward, but I mean. You know, regardless, I mean, Giannis is amazing. Like it is, yeah. it is truly fun to watch him. It's, it's like, you know, it, it, it's, it's like watching, not, not necessarily the same player, but it's similar to young LeBron, where it's just he's such a, a physical force, and he's, he's got you know such a high IQ in terms of using all of his physical tools to his advantage. I mean, it's, it's really, really fun to watch. You know, especially watching like a 24 year old and knowing it's only going up from here. Like he's going to get better and better. That's, that's been one of the really fun things about this series. You just touched upon this just to follow up a little bit more about Aaron Baines and his playing time. So I was looking at it and I was surprised in looking at the two box scores that he only played, I think it was nine and 10 minutes respectively. I know he had that ankle injury incurred in this, I think it was the second half of game one and then he, he came back. Um, but they were up by a lot, so or he may he may not have came back much because they didn't really need it. Yeah, he was. He was made available again, but he never returned to the game. Oh, okay, so, thanks. Yeah. And then game two, he picked up four fouls in ten minutes. So you think um, he's not going to necessarily play that much more in the remaining games, or, or how, how do you see Brad Stevens approaching that? Well, I think he'll he'll be Horford's backup. Um, you know, he, he's definitely not going to, I I definitely don't think he's going to start you know, he started all four games against the Pacers. The Celtics do like those Horford Baines, um, defensive lineups. They're pretty, you know, those have been really, really good defensively during the season against kind of select teams. But yeah, 10 minutes might be low. Um, obviously, like you said, he he was really racking up the fouls, but you know, I think, I think expecting somewhere between 10 and 15 is probably reasonable. You know, that's roughly what he played. You know, he, he played kind of that number against teams like the Bucks pretty often in last year's playoffs. So, mm-hmm. um, and then obviously his his minutes kind of ramped up when they faced the Sixers and, and Embiid. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think that somewhere in the 10 to 15 range is probably reasonable uh, to expect. Okay. So from the Celtics perspective, they started game two pretty strongly. And even though Kyrie Irving... Uh, was was off to a really slow start they were ahead after the first quarter Um, they were playing well but I mean Milwaukee lost eight home games all year never twice in a row in its own arena and so it was going to be a tall task to steal not only one but two in Milwaukee they didn't do that the game wound up not being close 
was it, do you think, mostly energy and effort on the part of Milwaukee or some other big things that translated into, into the uh, lopsided victory for them in game two? You know, if, if you were just looking for something to sum it up, I would say energy and effort is probably fair. Um, you know, if you wanted to get into the more micro stuff, I mean, I thought they defended Kyrie really well. They threw multiple guys at him. They had guys come, you know, really aggressively out. And then they always kind of had somebody at the rim to make his life a little more difficult when he got there. Um, they switched a lot, which was not something they did in game one. You know, I thought that really played a role as well. Um, and then, you know, you just kind of, I mean, Chris Middleton can't, literally can't miss against the Celtics like that dude just I mean he's he's amazing whenever he faces Boston and um, you know obviously the Celtics kind of let Bledsoe get going I didn't think that you know beyond beyond Kyrie's offensive stat line which was not very good you know he had three turnovers shot four for 18 I didn't think his defensive energy was very good and you know that might seem like sort of a the hazard that you take with Kyrie but his defense has actually been pretty good this postseason Mm -hmm. so I think uh, a lot of it kind of comes back to him, um, and I think he would probably own that as much as he would ever kind of own something like that. But yeah, I mean, look, like you said, the Bucks are really, really good. They're really good at home, and the Celtics got a 4-for-18 performance from their best player, and that's just, you know, that's, that's not going to cut it, and especially when the Bucks, you know, go 20-for-47 from three. Like, that's, that, yeah. there's not much you can do at that point, and you know, Celtics come out of there with a split and that, that's just kind of, that's right. just kind of where they're going to have to settle. Yeah. It's going to be a long series. Most likely. Definitely. I framed it as an energy and effort thing, but clearly as you touched upon, there are so many other things going on at around the seven minute mark of the third quarter. Still though, Boston got to within three points. It was 74, 71. And then the Bucks reeled off that infamous 31, four run. Obviously, not a good look for Boston. They scored four <laughs> points over a more than 10-minute stretch. You had a, a funny tweet about it. Something like, we've seen that in the regular season from Boston. Yeah. Um, I don't have the exact quote in front of me. It was funny. But um, from my perspective, Boston was missing a lot of open shots. And as you guys wrote about on Mass Live also, that was bleeding into pretty bad transition defense with those long rebounds, then not getting set, and then... Middleton especially, but other guys too, for just hitting their threes. Do you think that um, there's reason to worry moving forward, or is that just one of those terrible stretches that Boston has every once in a while, but they should be fine? You know, it's a good question, and I think one of the things to keep in mind with this Celtics team is is they do – you know, they do sort of have these stretches. And then, you know, sometimes during the regular season, that would lead toward finger pointing, that would lead to, you know, guys kind of getting upset with one another. And then that would really snowball. And then you're talking about a few losses in a row. And things can kind of, you know, things can go badly at that point for them. I will say, though, you know, in the locker room, everybody was pretty accountable. Um, You know, there wasn't a whole lot of like, oh, the young guys needed to do this. Oh, there was, um, you know, we needed to be better defensively or anything like that. It was more like, you know, Marcus Morris said, you know, Kyrie needs to have, like, they need to be setting better screens for Kyrie. And Kyrie said, you know, I need to be better at X, Y, and Z. So I, I think that there's certainly, you know, it was, it was something, it's something to keep an eye on, certainly. Um, you know, the, these, these bad stretches have happened and then they have sometimes snowballed, but it's the playoffs. Like, I, I just think that the Celtics are more locked in now everything matters a little bit more. You know, I think there's going to be less 
uh, less sort of unraveling over longer stretches. Obviously, it can happen in a game sometimes, especially on the road. But I personally would say that I, I think that it's that particular stretch of bad offense is probably going to be contained into game two. And, you know, we'll see what game three has to offer. I think what you said is fair. It wasn't overly optimistic. We'll definitely keep an eye on it. But that cohesiveness that you mentioned and just being there for your teammate in post-game comments and stuff, not throwing anyone under the bus, not really very much drama at all, which is unlike what we saw during the season at points. I do want to talk about Gordon Hayward. He's often regarded as a bellwether for this team. The win-loss split stats are pretty jarring if you look at it. I mean, maybe it's a little bit exaggerated and it's just a one season sample size, but Hayward shot over 40% from three when they won this regular season and 21% from three when they lost. Points per game average was 13.2 in wins and under nine per game in losses through the first two games of this series. That pattern is held pretty much with the Celtics winning when he did well and when they lost in game two, he only hit one field goal. How important is he to the Celtics postseason success? And what do you think the team can reasonably expect from him going forward? So the second part first, I mean, I think that he has really shown himself improving. He's a lot better now than he was at the start of the season, a lot more consistent. You know, at the start of the season, when Gordon Hayward would have a good game, it was because he started off making some threes and then maybe some other stuff would open up. But basically it was like, if he got hot from three, the Celtics were going to be okay and he was going to be okay. Um, you know, now he's getting to the rim. He's aggressive. He's attacking mismatches. He's he's operating out of the pick and roll. He's defending well. He's doing a lot of the things that made him good in Utah. And he's not he's not there yet. You know, he's obviously he's not like a an all star yet. But you can definitely start to see him putting the pieces together. Um, as far as his importance to the Celtics, I mean, it just kind of comes down to you know, look at the rest of this team. Like they've got all of this talent. You know, they've got these young guys who are really good in, in Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. They've obviously got their superstar in Kyrie Irving. They've got, you know, a great glue guy in Horford. When you add a $30 million player who, who's getting back to that $30 million level, then, I mean, that's just a tough team to stop. There's so many different outlets where guys can, you know, get buckets. There's so many different mismatches that you create by having five scorers on the court at the same time. And yeah, I just think, this team is just so much better when the concept that they built is actually in place. You know, they struggled a lot at the start of the season. And, you know, some of that was, was Jalen Brown starting slow. Some of that was, you know, this, this or that. But a lot of it was just, look, they thought they were going to have a, like a very versatile wing who can shoot and dribble and pass at a very high level to, at a $30 million level. And they didn't have that. Now they're getting back to having that point. So I think he's really important. I just think that he gives them an extra weapon and sort of an extra, just sort of an extra versatility that they don't have when he struggles. Yeah, when he's clicking, his game is just so smooth. It just seems like he's making all the right plays. His shot just looks beautiful. And then other times it seems like he disappears a little bit. Um, And I don't know if that's a function of just them having so many weapons to offensively um, or I mean, just how it's going for him. He hasn't been the most consistent, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And he's gotten more consistent as the year went on, but yeah, I mean, for sure he's, he even admitted that, you know, a couple of times this season, he said like, yeah, if I, if I make a couple of three pointers, then, you know, I feel better. If I miss a couple, like I might, 
lose a little confidence. And it's been interesting to talk to him because he's been pretty open about his sort of like his mental journey through the season all year. Um, you know, he hasn't been, he hasn't been particularly shy about, you know, saying like, I'm still recovering. I'm still, you know, struggling with things or, Mm -hmm. you know, I was really depressed when I first broke my ankle. Like he's really, he's been very honest about that kind of stuff, which has been, you know, sort of interesting to see. Yeah, that's refreshing to hear, especially as a reporter. You like to hear players being really transparent. Oh, my gosh, yes. So, <laughs> I'll combine this question. Uh, Malcolm Brogdon and Marcus Smart have both been injured. Yeah. And unfortunately for the Celtics, it seems like Smart may not be that close to return. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, And, and is likely out for the series. Uh, Brogdon could return as soon as Game 3 on Friday. and. Yeah. He was really solid this year. His best season in the NBA keeps getting better. Really good three-point shooter. What do you think his imminent return does for the Bucks? And to what extent do the Celtics have to um, adjust or just kind of keep doing what they're doing? And then also please touch on the smart absence if you can. Yeah, of course. So... Yeah, I mean Brogdon. Obviously, he, that's that's a huge get for them. Um, if he, assuming he does return for Game Three, and that sort of has been, you know, the sort of the implication from Budenholzer without actually saying it. But yeah, I mean he's a 50-40-90 guy who averaged sixteen points a game, you know, during the regular season. That's that's huge, and especially for a Bucks team that hasn't necessarily had consistent floor spacing with, you know, Pat Connaughton and, and Sterling Brown. Those guys haven't been particularly effective through the first couple of games and you put Brogdon back in there and all of a sudden I mean if you have Brogdon and Chris Middleton you know around the perimeter and Giannis charging through the lane I mean that's that's tough I don't know that the Celtics necessarily change anything I think they just need to be really really sharp with the way they defend and how they rotate their game plan is always going to be around slowing Giannis because as good as Chris Middleton and Malcolm Brogdon are, they're not going to win a series for the Bucks. If the Bucks win this series, it's going to be because they have, you know, the, the MVP of the league or the second MVP of the league, whatever. So I, I don't know that he changes the Celtics game plan, but he definitely raises what the Bucks are, um, which, you know, that'll be really interesting going back into Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as smart, it's tough to tell. I mean, I, you know, he is doing all these drills in front of reporters. Like it, 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 it's like even Brad Stevens joked about it the other day. Um, he's sprinting again, he's shooting threes. He's doing a lot of stuff that, that looks like it, it could indicate some healing in that left oblique that he tore. But you know, that's a serious injury. That's an, and that's not something, it's not a broken finger where you can kind of tough it out and come back. And, you know, if, if it gets bumped, get it retaped or whatever, like this is like literally the, the side of his stomach, like tore. So yeah. I, I think Stevens has, is very careful not to raise people's expectations. I don't know that he's out for the series, but I think I would say that we're probably looking more at like, like a possible like game six, game seven return if if he comes back. Much more, I feel like that's much more likely than like maybe he comes back for game four or something like that. I, I don't I don't think we're seeing him for at least a few more games here. We know how tough he is. If he could play, yeah. he would. <laughs> I'm sure. He just he's such a gritty player. I love his game. Finally, though, he was actually a decent three point shooter this year, over thirty six percent, which was a first for him in his NBA career. Finally, got over that forty percent shooting mark. Everyone would always joke about how 
he always had such good plus minuses for shooting so horribly. He's just yeah. such a <laughs> solid defensive player, always makes the right play. It seems like so many times you see him and he's on the ground uh, grabbing a jump ball or something yep. in the closing minutes of the game, just always making a key play. And so it has to hurt not having him there. But I, I guess it's just the next man up mentality for this deep Boston team. It is. And, you know, they do have plenty of guards. You know, Rozier has had, he had a bad game in, in game two, but, you know, he's had a good playoff so far um, after kind of a tough season. And then the Celtics use, you know, Jalen Brown is, is sort of a wing, but they use him as a shooting guard. So, yeah. you know, they, they use him to, to space the floor and to take guys off the dribble and to defend, you know, basically one through three. Um, so they do have some solutions, but I mean, yeah, you, you lose a guy that honestly is should be all first team defense. Um, you know, that's, that's a tough loss. And like you said, he's really, really tough. If there's, if he gets to a point where it's only about pain management, um, he'll play, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but he's got to get to that point first. And Steven said the other day that the Celtics need him to practice before they can even put a timeline on his return. And then Steven's couched that by saying, you know, whether that's one week or three weeks after his return to practice, I, I think it's probably more likely that it's a matter of smart returns to practice and then maybe a day or two later, if the practice goes well, he's, he's made available. Like, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily going to be like he returns and then he has to practice for two weeks before he comes back. Okay. But he does need to get to that point, and he has not yet. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more show. This is Sekou Smith of NBA TV, NBA.com, and the Hang Time Podcast. You're doing the right thing if you're listening to On the NBA Beat. Just a quick macro question for you. Yeah. We don't know, of course, if the Celtics are going to advance to the next round and if they do, whom their opponent will be. But um, try to handicap for me if you can. Just the challenge ahead of this team, given that they're the lowest remaining seed in yeah. the East. Or do you think it's more of a thing where maybe they're – the favorites arguably given the team continuity and the recent playoff experience that they've enjoyed. I wouldn't say they're the favorites. I mean, it's tough to say that a, that a team that, you know, didn't crack 50 wins during the regular season is the favorites, even with all the talent that's on the roster. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if they get through Milwaukee, I I guess, (laughs) let me me rephrase that. If they get through Milwaukee and they face Philly, they're the favorites. Um, Like they're, I don't think they lose to Philly. Um, I don't think so either. They're like that. That Philly team just has so many issues against Boston. At that point, they can go back to that Baines Horford just defensive dynamo um, that really crushes uh, the Sixers. And then they just have answers for everybody else. And the Sixers don't have anybody who can guard Kyrie. And yeah, like if if you don't have anybody who can guard the Celtics superstar, then you're in trouble. And then I think Toronto would be really interesting. I think Toronto would probably be the favorite in that series. Just Kawhi is so freaking good right now. Yeah, adding Gasol just really gave them an extra sort of an extra an extra weapon, an extra depth to their offense and their defense. So, you know, I I, I think that they would have a very fun, very competitive series with Toronto, um, and I, I think that Kawhi might be the difference in that one. But you know, either either one of those series would be entertaining, and, and I think uh, I, I think Toronto would be the favorites if that matchup came about. 
Yeah, the Eastern playoffs are just so fascinating this year with the late season player movement, LeBron James now being in the Western Conference, Kawhi being in the East, and and just all these teams, like I just said, made all these big moves to bolster their rosters. Um, And so a lot of these teams haven't necessarily been together that long as a unit, but they're just all so deep, it seems like. You know, they are. And it's also fun because the Western Conference doesn't, I mean, obviously the Warriors are playing really well right now, but they don't feel like the sort of foregone conclusion that they have in the past. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's changing right now with with KD just going, you know, completely bonkers and, and everything else. Like, you know, maybe, maybe that calculus changes in the next couple of weeks here, but as things kind of stand right now, it doesn't feel like the West is guaranteed to have the champion. I think Toronto would really challenge Golden State. Boston has always played Golden State pretty well, all things considered. And, you know, uh, and I mean, obviously, Milwaukee was the best team in the NBA during the regular season. And Philly is there, too. So (laughs) I don't know. I actually agree with that. It sounds weird to say, given the Warriors historical dominance over these last five years or so. But yeah, it's it's kind of wide open. Maybe not wide open, but right. Like you said, it's not a foregone conclusion that the Warriors are just going to waltz in there and and come away with the Larry O'Brien trophy. So I want to give you a chance to praise the young guys. I just, I can't remind people enough that Jason Tatum just turned 21 in March. Jalen Brown's 22. It's so hard to believe. Um, Terry Rozier is is 25, so he's not so young relative to them, but this is only his third year in the league. So last year, those guys got ample playoff experience in big games. They went to two game sevens, including one against LeBron James and the Cavaliers. And so seems like very valuable playoff experience for guys who are in their early 20s. Tatum's had a couple poor games to start the series, but he was really good in the series against the Pacers. Jalen Brown's been shooting really well. Talk to me a little bit about those guys and their impact. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you look at Tatum, and I mean, there's just so much there um, when he really starts putting everything together. Obviously, he can score. Um, he started doing that last year. He was hitting threes to start the season, and then he sort of expanded into into all the other things he can do. Um, he's such a, you know, he, his arms are so long, and he's, he's just so good at utilizing that length around the rim. Um, and he started to learn how to sort of grift his way to the free throw line. Uh, that's going to be something that he works on over the next kind of year or two, I think. And, and that'll just make him more and more efficient. And he's really started playing well out of the pick and roll. You know, he can pass a little bit. He can um, sort of orchestrate when he gets a screen. He's, he's got like sort of a floater game that he didn't have last year. So he's really been adding things to his arsenal. And, and then, you know, Jalen, I mean, he's, he's improved every single season, especially, you know, especially as a shooter you know, his first season, I think he shot like 21% or something like that in the playoffs from three. And, and, uh, you know, this season, I mean, that's, that's just skyrocketed. You can't leave him open. You can't let him get a rhythm three pointer. So you have to close out hard and he loves getting that first step on guys and then trying to get to the rim. And I mean, he's got, he's picked up probably four or five really, really good posters at this point, um, on some really impressive guys. Uh, you know, he's got two on Giannis. He's got a really big one on, uh, Embiid. So Watching their development has been really fun. You know, they're both uh, they're both smart basketball players. They're both definitely guys that the organization loves. They love their you know sort of their growth mentality is a thing that Brad Stevens likes to talk about. Um, so 
I think both have really, really bright futures. Both, both of them will probably hear their names in trade rumors this summer. And, you know, we'll see how that goes when, uh, you know, when we get to it. But yeah, I mean, for right now, for the Celtics, having two young guys like that who can really pitch in and, and who are starting to learn how to play alongside other stars is, is just really, really valuable. Yeah, it's unfortunate that we've heard their names in trade rumors, but Anthony Davis, 25, I think he just turned 25, something yeah, like that. It's I think, crazy I think he might be 26. No, yeah, 26 now. Yeah, and already a superstar, and so you pretty much have to give up a lot to get him. Definitely. But um, maybe the Pelicans have less leverage than they did. It, it'll be really interesting. I think that if you're the Celtics, you shouldn't trade Tatum and Jalen Brown. Yeah. But asking price is going to be a lot. Yeah. So I guess we'll just have to, to see what happens. I want to read the Jalen Brown quote after from um, after game one. I just thought it was a, a cool thing that he said. They say we have a bunch of young guys, but we're not young no more. We've been through a lot. We've experienced a lot. So our attention to detail, our focus is up. I'm going to let you go. But before I do that, I just... I want to hear just generally what we can expect from the rest of the series. Um, you, don't, you don't have to give me a specific prediction, but um, just what should the listener expect to see? It's such a fun series so far. Definitely. And I think, you know, I think the biggest thing that we've learned from these first two games is not to overreact to one game. There were a lot of Celtics fans who, who thought that this was going to be like a four or five game series after game one. It is not. And there were a lot of Bucks fans who think that the Bucks are going to rattle off four wins in a row now. I don't think they are. Like, this is going to be a really, really competitive series. I, I, I think either team, honestly, you know, can make a really strong case that, that they could, you know, come away with it. But I do think that we're headed for six or seven. Um, and I think that either one of these teams can make a strong case that they could go to the finals and they could challenge Golden State. I mean, that's that's part of what makes this Eastern Conference semifinals so fun is that there's so much on the line for every team. The Bucks, you know, the Celtics, obviously, there's Anthony Davis. There's all this stuff in the summer. You know, the Bucks have to try to convince Chris Middleton that he should stick around if they offer him a, you know, a, a max. They have to convince Giannis in the long term that Milwaukee is a place where he can win. And the same can be said for, you know, various guys in the other series as well. So, I think it's just going to be, I think it's going to get chippier and chippier as we go on. I, I just think it's going to be a really fun series. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing how the rest of it unfolds. Yeah, I think that last thing you said is a fascinating point with all these guys in the other series as well in the East, Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler with impending free agencies and many others that we haven't mentioned. So the stakes are high. A lot is riding on this. Yeah. And personally, I'm glued to my TV and it's really great that you're able to be there and get us good coverage for mass live and i really appreciate you joining me on the podcast yeah of course man thanks for having me on thank you